Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. We're so glad you're with us today. We have turned our virtual interview booth into an Irish pub. It's the Mucky Duck Pub in honor of our guest author, Patrick Taylor. Come join us in the Mucky Duck. We'll listen to a few seconds of Irish pub music and then we'll be right back for part one of the Patrick Taylor interview. Do you have your pint of virtual Guinness ready? Oh, absolutely. Wouldn't go anywhere without one. <laughs> hey, Cheryl, how are you this morning, this afternoon? What is it? I'm good. Thank you. And hi, Patrick. Good hi, to be Cheryl. here with you guys. I knew I was going to get scrambled. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> the story behind the series. Patrick, you've been described as an accidental best-selling author. What's the story behind the creation of the series? I understand it has something to do with the characters being developed for a medical humor journal? What what could that be? Well, in England, there's a very famous political humor journal called Punch. A GP in Canada got licensed to produce a journal called Canadian Punch Digest for Medical Doctor. And this thing came out 10 times a year. I had been writing short humor articles for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. But uh, Punch asked me to contribute a monthly column, thousand words. Mm. Initially, I told about my medical student days, which were full of chaos, punctuated by terror when the exams came around. And then I got a bit tired of that, and I asked, could I develop a specific character? And it turned out to be a crusty old country GP called Dr. Riley. And I wrote those columns for about 10 years. Um, In the mid-90s, I had a suggestion from a friend I should try my hand at serious fiction. And I've always been in love with the short story. Ever since I read Somerset Maugham when I was a teenager, Anton Chekhov, latterly Alice Munro, who's a Canadian. So I got very lucky. I was able to get a short story collection called Only Wounded published. Um, I then wrote a thriller about the IRA and nobody would look at it. My editor said, Patrick, I don't think we can publish your humor columns as a book, but I like the central character. Could you write a novel about him? I thought, well, may as well try. I wrote a novel called The Apprenticeship of Dr. Laverty, which is published in Canada, and rockets it to instant obscurity. <laughs> Out of the blue, I got a phone call from a woman who identified herself as Natalia Aponte and said she worked for Macmillan. As you may or may not know, there are only five major publishing houses in English, and Macmillan is one of them. Mm-hmm. She said, I want to acquire the rights to the apprenticeship of Dr. Laverty. I said, look, I get spam phone calls all the time and hung up. <laughs> she phones me back and says, don't hang up. Like Shelley Berman years ago. I really do want to acquire your book. So I had to negotiate with my Canadian publisher, pay some money to get the rights back. And uh, it was then republished in New York under the title of The Irish Country Doctor. I was invited to go to New York for the launch. I went to New York. The publisher, who's a lovely man called Tom Doherty, took me and some of his staff out for lunch. And in the middle of lunch, the cell phone rang and he answered it, which I always think is a bit rude. I'm far too polite to say so in that company. And he was very crisp. He said, yes, right, I see. Turned it off. And he turned to me and said, you know what you've just done? 
Now you have to understand, I went to a boys' boarding school, and if a master said, do you know what you've just done? <laughs> you know, it wasn't me, made the walls of Jericho fall down, sir. Honestly, it wasn't. <laughs> I was terrified. So you have just done this, put your book on the New York Times extended bestseller list. Um, awesome. Snag goes, I was the only person there who knew CPR. <laughs> I'm going to have a heart attack about this news. It's going to help me out. Anyway, that happened. What was meant to be a one-off ended up, the 15th book in the series was published last October. And mm-hmm. there's a novella coming out this October. So it's mm-hmm. been a wonderful ride that's a great story, Patrick. And it's even more wonderful because it's true. <laughs> I make up the <laughs> Patrick, your characters are so vivid. They're wonderful. Can you talk mm-hmm. about the process that you went through in developing these characters? I know yeah. you worked in the magazine, writing the columns, but in the Wiley O'Reilly you republish what are versions of those columns and they don't line up exactly with the characters in the novels. So how did they transition and what was your process? Well, I wrote the columns and I picked names at random. I mean, for example, the man who owns the Mucky Duck Pub, his actually real name is the Black Swan. The the locals call it the Mucky Duck. In fact, in Hollywood County down, there is a pub called the Dirty Duck. It's a very good (laughs) gastro pub. But I had my mucky duck before the dirty duck opened, so it's a, I got the name first. Publican was called Arthur Osbaldiston in my column. He morphed from that into Willie Dunleavy. Let me back off this. How do I develop characters? Well, first of all, I don't describe anybody I know. Can any of you, any of you listening, tell me a color outside the visible spectrum? So fundamentally, the human animals like that too. There are a limited number of physical characteristics. There are a limited number of character traits. I worked for a very irascible senior when I was training. I mean, he was very angry. The tip of his nose blanched. So I gave Dr. O'Reilly a blanching tip of nose when he lost his temper. And that's how I developed the characters. And then there is a logic to human behavior. Once you've established the baseline of a character, I just set them down on the page and let them loose and see what they do. <laughs> and generally speaking, what they do pleases me. And in one of the early books, my wife and I were renting in Canada for a while. That's a long story. We don't need to go there. But she was at the kitchen end and I was at my desk. And she said, what the hell are you laughing at? I said, you're not going to believe what O'Reilly's just done. So that's how it is. That's great. That's great. Patrick, did you have a piece that you were going to read for us? This is an adult show. I'm going to be try for rude in Irish vernacular, but please bear with me. So one of the things that Patrick does in his books, which is really different, but if you heard the introduction, an academic, he's a medical doctor, a medical researcher, et cetera. So it's not too surprising that he intersperses Irish terms throughout the book. And so he gives you a glossary in the back, which unfortunately is hard to get to with Bard, but I just purchased one of his paperbacks so now I can actually see what the glossary looks like with my magnifier and the maps and all that he no, includes. No. Go ahead, Patrick. I'm actually going to read you from that book called My Irish Country Christmas. I described a Christmas pageant. In those days, back in, in 1964, in those days you were allowed to have Christmas pageants. You didn't have to call them festival, winter festival, or that. And the interesting thing about my village is that it's very <laughs> ecumenical. In 1941, the Luftwaffe bombed Belfast. 
and of course they naturally hit the poorer parts of the city, uh, the inhabitants fled to the country, to strangers. And Protestants took in Catholics, and Catholics took in Protestants against a common enemy. And in the village of Ballybuckle Bow in 1946, the then priest and the then Presbyterian minister decided to amalgamate the children from both faiths and have a Christmas festival. Mm. And that had continued until 1964 when this took its step. Imagine the village hall, it's packed. Uh, in the front row are all the nuns from the local convent and the mother superior, uh, mm. the parish priest, the Presbyterian minister and his family, and of course the doctor. The schoolmistress comes out and she reads, a bit like the nine lessons and carols, and Barry Laverty's watching all of this, all right? And he looked at to O'Reilly. And to Barry's surprise, the big man's lips were moving too, along with what the schoolmistress was reading. They were forming the same words that Barry was hearing from the stage. Into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being graced with child. The pulleys creaked and the curtains opened, and it came as no surprise to Barry that a group of shepherds near the back of the stage sat around a pen with a few sheep in it. Such props would not be hard to come by in Ballybuckle Boat. A spotlight focused on Joseph, who wore open sandals and a white robe tied at the waist with a piece of rope. The same cordage must have been haggled to tie a checkered hanky round, he said, for a kafaya. Mickey Corey led a live donkey by the halter. Eenie Kennedy, wearing a long blue dress up the front of which padding of some sort had been stuffed, rode side saddle. She touched the donkey's mane and looked to Barry as if she was terrified she might fall off. The party stopped outside the door over which hung the Bethlehem inside. Oh dear Mary, everywhere's full Maybe this inn will have a room. The lines were delivered in a flat monotone. I hope so, Joseph. Joseph knocked on the door. It was opened by Colin Brown, who for the previous two years had played the starring role of Joseph and was not pleased about being relegated to innkeeper. He was bareheaded and wore a grey robe that looked to Barry as it might have served as one of Mrs. Brown's dresses. He sported a blue and white striped builder's apron. Hello, innkeeper. Paul's smile was beatific. His words enunciated loudly and clearly. Who's there? It's Mary and Joseph. We've come to Bethlehem to be taxed. Mary and Joseph? Harry had harbored a tiny doubt that Colin might try to pull some stunt. Now he relaxed. The little play was going perfect. Could we have a bed for the night? My wife's having a baby and she's very tired. Colin's voice was soft, welcoming. Well, Mary, he explained. And he emphasized the word, Mary. I've no room at the inn. But of course, you are very welcome to go into the stable, Harry stiffened. That wasn't how he remembered the script. Of course you can, Mary, Colin said. Then he turned to Joseph and yelled. As far as I'm concerned, Joseph, you dirty gurrier, you miserable little gobshite, you can just set off. There was such a communal indrawing of breath 
that Barry thought the walls of the hall might bow inward. He glanced at the stage where the players, all save the innkeeper, who had a wicked grin, were frozen as in the tableau vivant. Mary's eyes were wide. Joseph looked as though he were ready to kill. A shepherd was on his, on his feast yelling. It must have scared one of the sheep because the animal cleared the hurdle like a racehorse in a steeplechase. <laughs> the sheep collided with the donkey. Barry heard an enormous bray. The donkey and Mary, clinging to its mane, ran at the door to the Bethlehem Inn, knocked the innkeeper flat on his back before disappearing into the wreckage of collapsing scenery. He knew he shouldn't, but Barry couldn't stop laughing. He felt him tucking at his sleeve, turned and heard O'Reilly yell above the row, Come on, Barry, I need a hand. The mother superior fainted. Oh, I got and I have to explain my slight profanity. In Ireland, the F word barely used, it's replaced with sec, which has become so widely used that it ceased to be scatological, really. And I was explaining it to my daughter this very fact. I said, you, you can even hyphenate with it. You know, Lord love me, I've got diafec and rea. And she said, <laughs> just like that, dad, that's spec, feck, and tac. You know? <laughs> it's not really rude. Anyway, Kath, there's the reading point. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Patrick, you picked my favorite scene out of all the books. How did you do that? Actually, um, I have been doing readings for quite a while, and I have a fairly good sense of what goes down there. Dorothy wanted me to read you a scene where the slightly crazy Maggie McCorkle is convinced she's, had, she's pregnant with the second coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She goes to buy some simple groceries and coming out, she gets hit by a boy on a bicycle and she drops her groceries. She must have had tomato ketchup and a couple of eggs because there's a great big red splodge with, with two eggs in it in the middle of it. O'Reilly goes over and he pats her on the shoulder and says, there, there, don't worry yourself, Maggie, dear. It wouldn't have lived its eyes were too close together. I thought that might be a bit misogynistic, so I didn't do that one. That was an absolutely brilliant scene when, when that one happened, too. Dorothy's grandson played the innkeeper in The Thing in Ireland. He twisted it, too. Joseph says, would you have a bed for the night? And her grandson said, sure, come on in. Oh, boy. No manger, no three wives, man. Sure, I've got a bed, come on in. <laughs> Let's just rewrite history, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. We can identify with the characters. Mm -hmm. They're pretty far mm -hmm. outlandish. Patrick builds up to these scenes. You get mm -hmm. a breadcrumb trail, and Colin visits the doctor, and he's visited Dr. Barry earlier, and he's very mm -hmm. frustrated and angry and won't go to school because the other kid is playing Joseph, mm -hmm. and Barry's concerned because he knows this kid can be devious. So there's a buildup throughout. and You don't quite know where it's going until you get there to the Christmas scene. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening with the Mother Superior that's fainted, too. I'm going to let you in on the secret. When you say as a reader, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, neither do I. <laughs> when I'm writing it. I am beginning to figure that out. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. Cheryl? And that leads us into, Patrick, do you, do you outline your books? Do you do, no. do, you know, when you're, do you do the plotting or, or do you let your characters just go and develop? 
Well, I, originally I thought I was writing a one-off, and it ends up with a character saying to Barry, who's not sure if he wants to be a country doctor, do you like it here? And he says, I don't like it, I love it. I thought that was the end of the series. Except uh, Forge McMillan asked me for a second book, so I had to write that one. And it became quite apparent uh, after the second book was about two-thirds written that Forge wanted two more after it. Mm. So I then came up with the idea of leaving what I call loose ends at the end of each book. Yeah. Not all the stories have an ending. So I have not where I left off. Mm. Mm. Um, a lot of thriller writers are very good at, it's like a sculptor. They put the mm. armature and then they put the clay on it. I don't work that way. I mean, when, I, <laughs> when I teach writing, um, I, I, I can only teach how I write. I, I've never been to school to be taught how to write. Mm. Um, but I say to my students, never know the end. Because mm. if you know what the ending is, then your characters have to get there. Mm -hmm. And you have to force them there. Mm. Let them tell you what the end is. That's it. Yeah, I agree. Kathy's the plotter. I'm the creative. Yeah, yeah I hear you. They just let those characters develop. But we all need our plotters and our sculptors. And so, yeah, thank you for that, for validating me. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have people who read your books each time you do a new book before publishing. No, my wife is very good uh, Mm -hmm. My standard working routine is I, we get up in the morning and have breakfast together. I go to my mm -hmm. study. We have a funny mm -hmm. house. My study is freestanding. I will write and go home for lunch at 1.30, come back here at 2, finish up at 4.30. Usually, I will have put together a couple of thousand words during that time. And I instantly take it over with me. And we read it silently together. And she's a spot-on proofreader. We discuss it. When I go back to work the next day, the first thing I do is let in those corrections. And then I throw that chapter in a drawer and get on with the next chapter. About two mm. weeks later, I take that chapter, the, the one I've just described, out of the drawer and read it once again. Mm. I think I probably go through about five or six drafts on mm. every chapter, at which point I'm happy enough to send it to the publisher. And then, of course, my editor there gets at me as well. So. <laughs> I like that process too. I call it an incubation process, yeah. putting it in the drawer, you walk away from it and then you can see it fresh. And I have made, yeah. a, terrible, I have made a terrible mistake in what I just said. Yeah, Dorothy and I do all that. I have a personal editor and she was assigned to me by the publisher of my book of short stories. She's a wonderful woman. Her name's Carolyn Baker. <laughs> When Dorothy and I have gone through that process, and I've gone through the in-the-drawer process, I then ship that chapter to Carolyn, who gives it a professional edit. I attend mm -hmm. to her corrections, and then it goes in the final part. I haven't been writing much for the last year, until obviously I haven't mm -hmm. been using Carolyn, and I have one of those slight mental glitches where I completely forgot about it. So I do have that as well. Very good. That's helpful to understand your process. We all have our own processes, but it helps to hear how other people do it and we get new ideas. One thing I want to mention to our audience and our listeners is that you're hearing Patrick talk about belly buckle bow. And we say it quickly, belly buckle bow. It's a, a village in North Ireland 
and you might find information online about it, but it is entirely fictitious. It is a creation mm -hmm. of this man's mind, partially blended with his experience, which is what a lot of us do when we write fiction. But Patrick, you've created this fictitious village in a real country. You've created fictitious characters drawn from mixtures of people you know, and then you embellish them. And then you infuse with it heavily, but pretty invisibly, doses of medical history, medical practice, archaeology, social and political history, along with geography, ornithology, and Gaelic. I mean, my goodness, where did you derive the content for the series? And how did you envision weaving all of these pieces together? I don't know. <laughs> I have to make a confession first, by the way. When I was a schoolboy, my French teacher, after one of my failures to decline an irregular verb, said, Taylor, you're so stupid, you could have come from Ballybuckle Bow. And that name stuck uh -huh. in my mind. And so I used for Bally. Uh -huh. Bally is a thing called a townland, which is mm -hmm. a small village and the surrounding country. Kyle is boy and Bow is cow. So it's the townland of the boy's cow. There is in the Ards Peninsula in the north of Ireland, and I was not aware of this when I wrote the book, a townland called Ballybubblebo. So if you, if you Google it, you, they may take you to an actual townland, but it has nothing to do with my village. So the, the weaving together, you know, you address some touchy subjects, Patrick. Yeah. In the reading, you mentioned you're, you're getting to this Protestant-Catholic conflict yeah. in yeah. Ireland during the period that you wrote and you create an ecumenical village. Uh, it's a perfect little community, but it has definitely its struggles, and, and you build on that. And you touch on things like feminism. I was re-listening to one of the books today, and you're getting into domestic abuse, yeah. you know? And, and yet you're addressing critical issues of the day with humor. What gave you the idea to be able to incorporate those? Where does that come from within you as an author? I don't think... Anybody can be an author unless they devour other people. But this, again, is going to make you think I've lost my marbles. I haven't. I was five years old before I understood that children only had two parents, not three. I wasn't actually born in Ireland. I was born in Blackpool, Lancashire, because my father, an Ulsterman, had married an English girl. But more importantly, and there was no conscription, no draft in Ireland, Northern Ireland. At the outbreak of the Second World War, he volunteered for the Royal Air Force, and he was stationed in Blackpool when I was born. He was immediately posted to what was then called the Middle East. He went to Baghdad um, because they were rebelling against the British protectorate, the Air Force. Long story. My mother came from one of those weird families where her aunt was only about six years older than her. So I was brought up by my mother, my uncle, and my aunt. So naturally, assumed all kids had got three parents. My aunt was an English teacher. And I will never forget her set reading to me from The Wind in the Willows when I was about four. And she brought it alive. And she used to say, Pat, books are your very best friend. When everybody else turns their back on you, you can still go back to your books. And I don't know how she indoctrinated me. My father was a physician. He insisted on a certain toilet paper and it had the legend on every every sheet medicated with Isle germicide. I would read that in the back of cornflakes boxes. I have been cursed with a memory. 
we can't get through medical school unless you have a good memory. Mm. There's a very good book about a doctor called Not as a Stranger. And when the young man who wants to be a doctor asks the old doctor, how do you define a doctor? And you've got to remember this was set in the 40s. The answer was, a doctor is a man who remembers things. He remembers a lot of things. So that's where it comes from. I also keep one aided now here, cop to the news. I wrote two thrillers about the IRA. I had to do a huge amount of background research. Know a bit about that. I even was given an illegal pamphlet on how to make uh, explosives. I got advice from the chief of the bomb disposal squad of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And the G7, which is on at the moment, when it was held in Vancouver, the chief of the bomb squad had to come out and sweep the campus at UBC to make sure it was safe. And he says to me, Pat, I said, well, you're coming out, Eve. Let's go. I'll take you out to my favorite pub. He says, what size are you? I said, well, you talking about T-shirts. And he said, yep. I said, large. Right. <laughs> he hands me this T-shirt. And it says on the front of it, there's a little man in a guy Fawkes pointy hat with the sort of anarchist bomb fizzing in his hand. But it says, I am a bomb technician. And it says on the back, if you see me running, try to keep up. <laughs> Debbie, could you play a little bit of Irish pub music and people can refill <laughs> their Guinness or Smithkins or whatever they're <laughs> drinking? <laughs> That's called the Irish right. Woman. Yes. yes, it is. The Washington, yes. yeah. Thank you for joining Kathy and me and Dr. Patrick Taylor for part one of the interview. Please listen in to part two. You won't want to miss it. It's not just any Q&A. It's filled with so much information from Dr. Taylor. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for joining us today. Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. Now tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. We also have a donate button and that's to help with the expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this show and podcast going. There's a link there that you can tap on that will take you directly to our website at www.writingworkswonders.com. There you will find all the information we talked about today along with show notes and so much more. We want you to feel encouraged and inspired to know the wonder of writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.